welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Tudor, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 40, Funding Better COVID Propaganda, The Mercury Project, Part 2. In Part 1 of this series, I introduced The Mercury Project and contrasted its stated aims, that is to improve COVID-related health outcomes in 17 countries, 16 of them low and middle income, by combating health mis- and disinformation that had dissuaded people from accepting a COVID-19 injection with the reality on the ground. That reality is simply that the countries with the highest uptake of COVID jabs generally have the highest COVID-attributed death rates and the highest excess mortality, and conversely, those countries whose populations largely rejected the jabs are doing the best on both counts. Given that the entire raison d'etre of the Mercury Project is self-evidently fallacious, you may be asking yourself how and why it has managed to attract over 30 million US dollars in funding and snare some big-name researchers, including Angela Duckworth of Grit fame and Katie Milkman, host of the behavioural economics podcast Choiceology and author of several popular books on behaviour change. As a side note, you'll be pleased to know that these celebrity researchers are going to lend their talents to persuading more Americans to accept boosters that have negative efficacy, that is, they increase the risk of infection against the Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2. Nice work. To answer those how and why questions, we need to delve into the history of the organisations behind the Mercury Project. As you remember from part one, the project was initiated by the Social Science Research Council with seed funding by the Rockefeller Foundation, which kicked in $7.5 million, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, $2 million, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, $500,000, and that initial seed funding round was followed by a $250,000 grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation and then $20 million from the National Science Foundation. In this episode, we'll delve into the Social Science Research Council and the Rockefeller Foundation, and part three will examine the remaining foundations. The Social Science Research Council. This is how the Social Science Research Council describes its history and mission on their About Us page. Quote, the Social Science Research Council is an independent, international, non-profit organization founded in 1923. It fosters innovative research, nurtures new generations of social scientists, deepens how inquiry is practiced within and across disciplines, and mobilizes necessary knowledge on important public issues. For nearly 100 years, the Social Science Research Council has coordinated the research, policy, and philanthropic communities in the pursuit of evidence-based policies to promote human well-being, emerging as both a pivotal force in the academy and a respected contributor to the public good. The SSRC is guided by the belief that justice, prosperity, and democracy all require better understanding of complex social, cultural, economic, and political processes. We work with practitioners, policymakers, and academic researchers in the social sciences, natural sciences, humanities, and related professions. We build interdisciplinary and international networks, working with partners around the world to link research to practice and policy, strengthen individual and institutional capacities for learning, and enhance public access to information." End of quote. But the real story is rather more complicated and much less benign. 
In reality, the SSRC itself was established by tax-exempt foundations for the purpose of steering the development of the social sciences, that is psychology, sociology, anthropology, economics, political science, history and statistics, in a direction which supported the financial, social and political objectives of the robber barons who established them. The 1915 report of the Walsh Commission on Industrial Relations had excoriated the tax-exempt foundations, particularly the Rockefeller Foundation, for using their vast wealth to mould public policy to its founders' financial interests, whilst being, quote, subject to no public control, end of quote. The following quote is from the final report of the Commission on Industrial Relations. Quote, the entrance of the foundations into the field of industrial relations through the creation of a special division by the Rockefeller Foundation constitutes a menace to the national welfare to which the attention not only of Congress but of the entire country should be directed. Backed by the $100 million of the Rockefeller Foundation, this movement has the power to influence the entire country in the determination of its most vital policy. The so-called investigation of industrial relations has not, as is claimed, either a scientific or a social basis, but originated to promote the industrial interests of Mr. Rockefeller." End of quote. As a consequence, the foundations established academic holding companies, such as the SSRC and the American Council of Learned Societies, the ACLS, in order to launder their agenda-shaping research funding through ostensibly independent bodies, which were, in reality, anything but. Quote, the ACLS and SSRC were founded in 1919 and 1923 respectively, and between 1925 and 1960, the former organization, that is the American Council of Learned Societies, received $20 million from foundations, 60% of which came from the Big Three, that's the Rockefeller, Carnegie and Ford Foundations, and from 1925 to 1960, the SSRC received $28 million, 95% of which was funneled to them by the Big Three. End of quote. And that quote is from a paper called Progressive Social Change in the Ivory Tower, a critical reflection on the evolution of activist-orientated research in U.S. universities. The agenda of the SSRC was laid bare by Norman Dodd in his 1954 report to the Special Committee of the House of Representatives to investigate tax-exempt foundations, which became known as the Reese Committee. Referring to the complex web of associations, societies and councils established and maintained by the largesse of the tax-exempt foundations, Dodd concluded, quote, The broad study which called our attention to the activities of these organisations has revealed not only their support by foundations, but has disclosed a degree of cooperation between them which they have referred to as an interlock, thus indicating a concentration of influence and power. By this phrase, they indicate they are bound by a common interest rather than a dependency upon a single source for capital funds. It is difficult to study their relationship without confirming this. Likewise, it is difficult to avoid the feeling that their common interest has led them to cooperate closely with one another and that this common interest lies in the planning and control of certain aspects of American life through a combination of the federal government and education. This may explain why the foundations have played such an active role in the promotion of the social sciences, why they have favoured so strongly the employment of social scientists by the federal government, and why they seem to have used their influence to transform education into an instrument for social change. In summary, our study of these entities and their relationship to each other seems to warrant the inference that they constitute a highly efficient, functioning whole. Its product is apparently an educational curriculum designed to indoctrinate the American student from matriculation to the consummation of his education. 
It contrasts sharply with the freedom of the individual as the cornerstone of our social structure. For this freedom, it seems to substitute the group, the will of the majority, and a centralised power to enforce this will, presumably in the interest of all. Its development and production seems to have been largely the work of those organisations engaged in research, such as the Social Science Research Council and the National Research Council." End of quote. And once again, that was from the Dodd Report to the Reese Committee on Foundations. I highly recommend watching G. Edward Griffin's interview with Norman Dodd on his investigation of the tax-exempt foundations and his disturbing conclusions, which I've embedded in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Historian Dorothy Ross, in her 1991 book, The Origins of American Social Science, crisply summed up the role of the SSRC as handmaiden to the agenda of the tax-exempt foundations. Quote, By 1923, the formation of the Social Science Research Council and the Rockefeller Largesse had plunged the sociological profession wholesale into empirical research from which they hoped a basic science of social control would emerge. End of quote. Fostering collectivism, centralising power, harnessing the scientific enterprise in service of crony capitalism to engender social control. That's what the SSRC is all about, not promoting human well-being as their boilerplate admission statement would have you believe. Is it any surprise then that the SSRC unabashedly heads the page on which it lists sub-projects on which Mercury Project grantees will be beavering away as follows? social and behavioural science to build vaccine demand and healthier information environments. Mercury Project teams will work around the world to increase take-up of vaccines and essential health services at scale. Because nothing screams essential health services like the use of applied behavioural science to manipulate people who don't want them into taking them up. The Rockefeller Foundation the strategic use of the tax-exempt foundation was pioneered by industrial robber barons who made their vast fortunes but squandered their social capital in the 19th century by seizing control over natural resources, engaging in anti-competitive business practices, buying the influence of elected officials, ruthlessly exploiting labour and fleecing unsuspecting investors. Railroad and steel magnate Andrew Carnegie was the first to grasp the utility of the tax-exempt foundation as a vehicle for perpetuating the crony capitalism that had facilitated his accumulation of unfathomable wealth. While dodging income and inheritance taxes and replacing his tarnished public image as a ruthless monopolist with that of a civic-minded philanthropist. As James Corbett explains in his documentary, How Big Oil Conquered the World, which is a must-watch for anyone interested in the subversion of the founding principles of the United States by the tax-exempt foundations and the ripple effect that this has had on every other nation, quote, In 1905, he established the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, a tax-free foundation through which Carnegie and his appointees could direct the development of the education system in the United States and eventually worldwide, end of quote. Standard Oil founder John D. Rockefeller quickly cottoned on to the multi-dimensional utility of the tax-exempt foundation as a tool for reshaping humanity to serve his vision while preserving his vast wealth for his descendants. After an initial charter application was withdrawn due to an ongoing antitrust suit against Standard Oil and deep public misgivings about how the reviled robber baron intended to spend his massive endowment, the Rockefeller Foundation was finally chartered in 1913. Under the chairmanship of John D. Rockefeller II, the foundation rapidly inserted itself into moulding virtually every field of human endeavour into a form more to its liking. 
It lavishly funded research and reform projects in education, medicine, social science and the natural sciences, both through direct grants and the maze of ostensibly independent organisations such as the Social Science Research Council, which were established by the tax-exempt foundations to deflect public attention from their agenda-shaping activities. And the public was right to be suspicious of the Rockefeller Foundation's intentions. As Norman Dodd concluded, the tax-exempt foundations, in particular the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations, had used their colossal endowments to, quote, finance ideas and practices incompatible with the fundamental concepts of the US Constitution, end of quote. Of all those ideas and practices, the most reprehensible was eugenics. The pseudoscience of eugenics derived from the Greek word eugenis, meaning good in birth or good in stock, was developed by Francis Galton, who was Charles Darwin's first cousin. The full title of Darwin's seminal work, which is usually referred to simply as On the Origin of Species, is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or The Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. Galton defined eugenics as, quote, the science of improving inherited stock not only by judicious matings, but by all the influences which give more suitable strains a better chance." End of quote. Galton's intentions for the application of eugenics were not subtle. Quote, to give the more suitable races a better chance of prevailing over the less suitable. End of quote. Eugenics quickly became popular among the British upper crust. According to eugenics, both wealth and poverty were passed through the germplasm. Hence, the ruling classes were wealthy and powerful despite their lack of productive labour because of their innate superiority, whilst the masses who toiled in the farms and factories could never escape their position at the bottom of the socioeconomic heap because of their inherited inferiority. Not only need the idle rich suffer no ethical qualms about their unearned privilege, they were actually morally obliged to ensure that the poor continued to be starved and oppressed, to dissuade them from breeding and hence threatening the purity of the racial stock. Galton's ugly and scientifically baseless ideas quickly leapt across the Atlantic and caught on in progressive circles. As described by Edwin Black in his 2003 book, War Against the Weak, Eugenics and America's Campaign to Create a Master Race, they found an enthusiastic adherent in John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller ploughed the equivalent in today's terms of $100 million into the Eugenics Record Office in its first two years of existence. The first mission of the Eugenics Record Office, as Black recounts, was, quote, to identify the most defective and undesirable Americans, estimated to be at least 10% of the population. This 10% was sometimes nicknamed the submerged 10th or the lower 10th. At the time, this amounted to millions of Americans. When found, they would be subjected to appropriate eugenic remedies to terminate their bloodlines. Various remedies were debated, but the leading solutions were compulsory segregation and forced sterilization." End of quote. This was no idle talk. By 1937, 32 US states had passed laws authorizing forcible sterilization of individuals, and in many cases, entire families, who were judged by authorities to be unfit to procreate. As many as 70,000 Americans were involuntarily sterilized under these laws, most of them poor, black, Mexican, or of other undesirable racial background. John D. Rockefeller Jr. shared his father's penchant for eugenics. He lavishly funded the transplantation of American eugenics into Germany, establishing the complex of 20-plus Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes as the preeminent center of German race biology. One of the recipients of Rockefeller largesse was Ernst Rudin. 
Rudin went on to become the architect of Adolf Hitler's program of systematic medical repression, which began in 1934 with at least 56,000 forced sterilizations, disproportionately targeting German Jews, gypsies, and others who did not conform to the standards of racial purity that Hitler had imbibed from the American eugenicists. It escalated into a euthanasia program that murdered up to 100,000 Germans who were deemed too old, mentally or physically disabled to be useful, along with barbarous medical experiments that tortured and killed thousands of inmates of concentration camps and prisoners of war. The post-war revelation of Nazi atrocities committed in the name of racial purification drove the eugenics movement underground. It resurfaced as population control, which the Rockefeller Foundation zealously backed. Rockefeller funding was lavished on Planned Parenthood, an organization which continues to this day the mission of its founder, the avowed racist eugenicist Margaret Sanger, by positioning 79% of its surgical abortion facilities within walking distance of black or Hispanic communities. John D. Rockefeller III founded the Population Council, which focuses on reducing birth rates in Africa, Asia, Latin America and the Middle East, primarily by supplying long-acting contraceptives. And as science historian Lily Kay relates in her 1993 book, The Molecular Vision of Life, Caltech, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Rise of the New Biology, the discredited pseudoscience of intentional human breeding for enhanced social control was edged out by molecular biology, which received extensive Rockefeller funding. However, as with eugenics, molecular biology did not spontaneously evolve as new scientific discoveries emerged, but instead was systematically moulded by key scientists and the foundations that supported them, who directed the development of biological research towards a preconceived vision of science and society. Quote, Animated by a potent conjunction of Protestant values and technocratic visions, the Rockefeller Foundation's civic missions were formulated within the dominant cultural categories of race, class and gender, as well as within a socioeconomic framework that defined norm and deviance for individuals and groups. The Rockefeller philanthropies cultivated scientific and managerial elites in order to address the root causes of social dysfunction, culturally specific and historically contingent forms of maladjustment. Their projects aim to restructure human relations and to develop social technologies commensurate with the material and ideological imperatives of industrial capitalism, end of quote. And that quote was from The Molecular Vision of Life, Caltech, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Rise of the New Biology. Understand then that when the Rockefeller Foundation funds the Social Science Research Council to investigate the phenomenon of vaccine hesitancy or hosts a scenario planning exercise which envisions a worldwide authoritarian response to a respiratory viral outbreak, complete with effusive praise for, quote, the Chinese government's quick imposition and enforcement of mandatory quarantine for all citizens, end of quote, and the collapse of global supply chains, or funnels $500,000 into the development and promotion of a, quote, digital health app that you can use to present proof that you were vaccinated or tested negative for COVID-19, end of quote, or formulates and markets a national COVID-19 testing and tracing action plan that insists that normal life can only resume if the population submits itself to unreliable tests and utterly pointless contact tracing strategies or sinks $20 million into increasing COVID-19 injection rates in US communities of colour, they're not doing it because they love you. 
They're doing it because they are convinced that not only do they know better than you how you should live your life, but that they have the right to impose their technocratic collectivist solution on you whether you like it or not. The bevies of scientists for hire who accept the grant funding apparently agree because, unlike them, you are plainly too stupid, ignorant and selfish to make the right decision for your own sake and that of the collective good. And who defines that collective good, you ask? At the very end of his interview with Norman Dodd, G. Edward Griffin questioned the veteran investigator, why do the foundations generously support communist causes in the United States? As Griffin later explained, the word collectivist is a better description of these causes than communist. Why do the foundations generously support uh, communist causes in the United States? Well, because to them, what communism represents a, a means of developing what we call a monopoly. That is, the organization, we'll say, of, of large-scale industry into an, an administrable unit. Do they think that they will be one of they the will administrators? Be, they will be the beneficiaries of it, yes. Those who hold the reins of power set the agenda, and as George Carlin trenchantly observed, it's a big club and you ain't in it. But there's a reason, there's a reason. There's a reason for this, there's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never gonna get any better, don't look for it, be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. We'll dig into the history and agenda of the remaining donors to the Mercury Project in part three. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.